0: When you are building something no one has ever seen, something no one has ever imagined, who can you turn to for help? The answer is the other people who are facing the same issues you are. Those product inventing, boundary pushing, design obsessed folks who are just like you. Welcome to AWS Startup Stories. I'm Michelle Kung. And I'm Michael Copeland. What follows are the tools that work, the leadership practices that make a difference, and the lessons you only learn by building a company. And one more thing, what startup jockeys do with a very rare item, their downtime. So let's get to it. Tool,
1: practice, lesson, and something to do when you aren't neck deep in code.
0: We are here in Berlin at the Ready School of Digital Integration with one of the co-founders, Anna. Anna, pronounce your name for us.
1: Anna Richard.
0: Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for being here.
0: Well, tell us about the Ready School. We're here in the middle of Berlin in a, uh, an old postal
1: building. Is that right? Yeah, it is. I think actually built in the 1930s. So kind of ironic, but a good place to bring diversity together. Or right, let's talk about that. So, so what
0: is Ready School all about?
1: Ready School um, is a relatively young social enterprise. We started three years ago in the middle of the refugee crisis. We are teaching technology and digital skills mostly to migrants and refugees, but also to any Germans who would like to participate.
0: So, so coding, software, um, and and you mentioned the refugee crisis. For those of us who have not been in Germany, not in Berlin, and sort of not paying attention for that matter, what are we talking about?
1: So because of the civil war in Syria, we um, saw in 2015 and 2016, there was around 1.2 million Syrian refugees that needed protection in Europe and came to Germany. Um, and Angela Merkel opened the doors at least for a little while and let a lot of people into safety.
0: And the, the, you saw this. So you're actually, you're from Denmark. Um, you were living in Berlin at the time?
1: I was living in Berlin at the time, um, but I actually have a refugee background myself to some degree in my family because my great-grandfather was a pacifist and he was German. And in 1933, because he did not agree with the Hitler regime, he actually um, was forced to leave Germany and became a political refugee in Denmark. So I'm a bit of a mixture. Right. So so how did you... And
0: certainly we're facing this in different ways in the United States, but you know, you see this, you know, mass of people who want something better get here to Germany and to Berlin in particular. And I know you guys operate another school in Munich, but how did you put those two things together? People, their sort of migration, their needs, and then software coding.
1: So I don't have a software or like a programming background myself. I studied innovation with a specific focus on peace innovation, I would call it. So really looking at how can we use the innovation processes to build a more peaceful world. Um, And my focus was how do we bring very, very large communities together because the environmental and the social challenges that we have are so complex that we need ideally hundreds of thousands of people working on finding new solutions. Um, So that was kind of my root into technology and I was running the Berlin Peace Innovation Lab in 2015 when we could see that there were more and more people coming from Syria to Germany. So of course we were asking us the question what is it that we can do as a peace innovation lab to support the young people arriving in Germany and the first thing we did was to create a big brainstorming workshop at Berlin Town Hall and we had about 50 stakeholders in the room but when we took a quick look around the room, we realized that there was actually no refugees being part of the brainstorming. And ah, right. that's when we realized, oh, let's not make that mistake. Of course, we need to really have the experts around the table who know what is needed. So we started going out into refugee camps and that's where the idea started to emerge.
0: Give us just a, a profile. And I know everybody's different, but like you were saying young people coming from Syria, we talked to a, a student of yours and a graduate, I guess, uh, Rami, who was living in Aleppo, Syria, had been through obviously this civil war and um, he and his parents decided it was time for him to go. And But he didn't really make a conscious decision. He was kind of ambivalent in so, at some level, like who wants to leave home, I'm, honestly, in your family? And then one day he and his dad went to the bus station, got on a bus and then just kept going.
1: Yeah, so... At Ready School, currently we have people from 43 different countries. Um, we have volunteers from 21 different countries. So Ready School almost feels like a small United Nations. It's a lot of um, young men and women, mostly in their mid 20s and early 30s, coming to us because they're interested in learning new digital skills in order to um, enter the German job market.
0: Well, so you've been building Ready School now for two and a half, three years. Is that?
1: Right. Yeah. The first initial idea came in August, 2015. Then we did a lot of pilot projects um, for about five months. And when we had really seen that there is traction on this idea, I quit my job working as a consultant and decided to do this full time.
0: And to be clear, you call it a social enterprise. It's a, in in our parlance, it's a nonprofit. You guys are here to, you know, help educate people and um, you're raising money through foundations and, and grants, et cetera. And the people who support you, right?
1: Yeah, well, I still like to actually call it a social enterprise because nonprofits, you often think about it as charity. And of course, we're doing something good, but I think it's important to think about the scalability of the idea, even if you're doing something good. And that means that to deliver a high quality product, we need to have really, really good staff. And of course, they need to get a decent salary as well. So for us, um, we get money, of course, from some um, foundation like Salesforce.org, Coca-Cola Foundation, but also through partnership with companies. So we work with Cisco, we work with Facebook, we work with Gluckner. So there's a number of companies that can really see that this is a way for them to attract talent to their organizations. And that's why they decided to both teach with us, but also to employ some of our graduates.
0: Right. Well, so you're building an enterprise, a social enterprise, as you say. Um. So let's talk about that and getting to these questions. So what is a tool that you use on a regular basis?
1: Believe it or not, my bicycle, I would say. I'm really, really lucky to just live 10 minutes away from my work. I used to live in Tokyo before, um, and was on public transport for probably two hours every day. Um, so one of the biggest luxuries really living in Berlin that it's a relatively, well, first of all, flat area right. <laughs> and it's also a relatively green city. So just getting some air and getting a little bit of exercise is good, at least so when it's you're a
0: founder. <laughs> it's, it's your transportation tool, but it also helps you to sort of air things out and relax and get out there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You don't get too much exercise as a founder, unfortunately. I'd like to get more, but at least, um, yeah, biking to work helps.
0: I'm trying to decipher, you go to a, you go to a city and you try to decipher the kind of the traffic rules for a bicyclist, for a pedestrian, it seems like you need to wait for the light to change. There's not much jaywalking here and, um, cars kind of are the top dog in some way. So how is it to ride a bicycle around here?
1: Well, we are in Germany and the Germans definitely do love their cars, um, I guess, for, for very good reasons. Um, but I think being a bicyclist in Berlin is very much um, probably like the Berliners. We are all a little bit rebels and anarchists. So we try to be safe, but also make our own rules.
0: There you go. <laughs> Sounds about right. A leadership practice routine, something that you do with your team here or, or other teams um, that you found that works for you.
1: So the Reddit team um, is now 35 people and we come from 11 different countries. So we speak many different languages. And the one thing that is extremely important for me to, to make myself understood in this multicultural environment is actually to draw. So I'm known for creating star men and explaining everything through um, drawing models on um, whiteboards. Because I think many times when when you speak or when you write things down in text, it can be hard to to really comprehend what is being meant. But I've realized that drawing is, is often the best way to be understood and people can relate to it and remember it in a different way.
0: Ah, that's interesting. So it's not just about precision, but it's also about conveying probably nuance at some level as well, right?
1: It really is. I mean, if you draw two star figures next to each other and one is bigger than the other, all of a sudden you will then start talking about power dynamics or if they're at an equal level, then you're talking about an eye-level conversation. And if you had to describe that in text, it would be much too complicated, but you can indicate that really, really fast and quickly and start having a discussion with, with the team around it. Even if it's it's just a little mistake that I might have made that one is written in blue and one is in, in red, this would mean something to to people and they'll start raising questions as well.
0: Right. Interesting.
1: Has that been your thing or did
0: you come to that as a sort of product, like you say, of, look, we have this diverse group working together. We all speak different languages, at least our own sort of native tongues. Or have you always been one of those people who walks up to a whiteboard and just starts drawing away?
1: So it is a skill called graphic facilitation. It's something that I learned, I think, 15 years ago when I was studying at the Chaos Pilots um, in in Denmark. It's a leadership education. And already then I was working in an international environment and could just see how effective it was when you're, first of all, facilitating very large groups of people, but also people with various backgrounds.
0: A lesson learned. Now this can be something that you were happy to learn um, or something that you were less than happy shall we say, to learn?
1: I think the biggest learning for me was really a question that we had early on when we just got started. And it was whether we should just scale our idea as fast and as to as many places as possible, or should we rather um, stay small in Berlin and really focus on quality? And we actually split the organization into in the beginning. So one part of the organization could go fast and all around Europe. And the other part could go slower with the strategy of basically nail it before you scale it. Uh-huh. And and we've seen that that for what we're doing, the nail it before you scale it strategy has definitely worked out. That said, um, in three years, we, we have had 10x growth as well. So even with being conservative, it, it's <laughs> yeah. gone fast. So you say
0: with what you do, and why do you think... Because you're right. There's lots of pressure, especially um, in the startup world and depending on what you do, but like by and large, there's lots of pressure to scale, right? To get Mm. big as fast as you can. And that doesn't always work out, right? I mean, and either you don't get big and or you get big and things fall apart because you're not keeping an eye on something. So why for what you guys do, is it necessary? Do you think to, to do this, nail it before you scale it?
1: At the end of the day, if you look at what we do, we're working with hope and giving people the chance of a better future in their new home country. And if we were to run Ready, School, Fast and Furious um, and open as many places as possible, the likelihood is that it wouldn't be financially sustainable. Right. And if we start opening doors for people, giving them a chance of a better future, but then that door closes uh, midway, um, people will get disappointed and, and many people had great ideas and ambitions when they arrived in Germany and and because, I mean, Germany did absolutely everything that they could, but so many people arrived that the experience of, of some of the refugees that arrived wasn't necessarily a good one. Um, so they've been let down in some way by the system, but the system did everything that they could and we don't want to repeat that. So, Ensuring quality and ensuring sustainability of the idea when you're working with people's hopes and dreams is, is very important to me.
0: And also sustainability from the outside in the sense of like we now know ready school, right? And and you want to kind of look to ready school as this source for doing computer training or IT training or coding training for, for people. And so from the outside, to the extent that you guys are sustainable, that has more of a lasting influence out there kind of in the world more broadly, right? Like I graduated from the Ready School. And that means something, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I would love to see Ready School um, in five years where we can see the graduates returning as experts and teachers coming to the school and say, you know, I was part of team one or two, and now it's team, I don't know, 25. Yeah, really thinking about this long-term and and being excited about being part of, hopefully, a social movement.
0: How did you resist that temptation to just, go big fast because it's always there, I think. And you guys must get offers all the time to, hey, come here.
1: <laughs> yeah, we do. I mean, um, and it's exciting and it's very flattering. Um, we have people in South korea wanting a school there we have people in in brazil wanting schools and we're looking at kenya as well but at the end of the day it also means that i need to be able to to sustain a team for at least two years to get started in a responsible way and that takes money right and and when you start having that money conversation with people the people who are not serious get surprised and say oh i thought you're a non-profit you were a nonprofit. you do not need money and we do even though we're not making a profit you still need to pay your people
0: Finally, what are you in all your vast spare time, which I'm sure you don't have as a founder, um, what are you binging?
1: Um, <laughs> maybe this is not very helpful, but um, I love a Danish radio program called Mass a Monopol. It's a monopole. Uh, exactly. your Danish is good. Um, yeah, it's Danish for mass, which is a journalist and a monopoly, but where people can call in when they have a dilemma and they have um, three people discussing dilemmas and what you should do in, in each situation.
0: It's fun. So it's a podcast and are these dilemmas could be anything? I mean, social, personal, business, whatever, right?
1: Yeah. Small and big, everything. But it's just fascinating to see how people live their life and the things that they're considering to be, um, yeah, I don't know, good behavior.
0: And I can imagine, because I like to listen to things like that too, but I can imagine that it's both entertaining and also... um, takes you out of your day to day, I guess, or maybe makes you feel better about your day to day. But so what is it about it that you think is appealing to you?
1: Um, So there's always three people in the monopoly having to give advice and they tend to not agree, which I really like. So you hear different points of view on, on how to solve an issue. So, um, I think the podcast has done it really, really smartly in ensuring the diversity of people and that there's not always just one straight answer. You can get many.
0: Oh, I love this. So, uh, Tell us the title again. A Danish podcast called? Messe Monopole. Monopole. All right. So let's, we'll recap. Messe Monopole. Uh, that's what you're binging. Go back to the beginning. The tool that you use on a regular basis, your bicycle, both for transportation to your 10 minute commute to work, but also just to sort of get some exercise and get some air as a founder. Leadership practice, draw things to communicate well. Yeah. Um, graphic recording. Graphical recording. And a lesson learned Nail it before you scale it. Correct. Anna from the Ready School of Digital Integration, thank you so much.
1: Thank you for being here.
0: Thanks for listening. Do us a favor and leave us a review. And if you know someone who we should have on the show, or maybe it's you, reach out to us at startupstories at amazon.com. And subscribe to AWS Startup Stories wherever you get your podcasts.